You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Acting Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. But, okay, so we we're talking about European crashes. So I, one of my favorite TV shows used to be Airplane Crash Investigation, something like that. Right. And uh, it was horrible. I was watching that like weekly when I was fl- getting on a plane every few days and one way to give yourself anxiety. But uh, anytime there's a crash of a, a, like a, either, either a U.S. airline or a plane made by Boeing, anywhere in the world, the U.S. would send investigators from you know, Boeing for example, would go over as well as the uh, the NTSB would go over. Does that happen with like if a Ford made in Detroit crashes in France? Does the U.S. send over investigators to find out, or is it just too common? An issue? No, their role and it, it wouldn't even be international. Their role is more um, if they see a transportation issue. There's a couple of things they've become involved with in recent years, more so than others. Um, they've been pushing for. NHTSA to do a better job restricting things like Tesla calling cars autopilot or full self-driving when they're not. And they've pushed strongly against that, but because the NTSB doesn't have enforcement or rulemaking authority in that area, then that's up to NHTSA. So basically they just continually chide NHTSA, (laughs) which is great in our opinion. Yeah, by charter, the NTSB has to investigate airplane crashes. Um, They do not have to investigate automobile crashes. They can elect to do that based on the resources and initiatives, you know, currently in place, but they don't have the charter to investigate all uh, automobile crashes. They tend to look at new technology that's coming into the marketplace and address that preferentially, which is why they've been looking at some of the Tesla crashes lately uh, with a lot of intensity. All right, let's get into uh, those recent stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, we had, uh, I see on the on autosafety.org, there's 400 crashes by self-driving cars. And, you know, there's, there's some bits of good news articles on this. Uh, can you define what a self-driving car is to me? Because... Yeah, that, that's, a, that's actually a misleading headline. Um, there were there were 400 crashes by the ADAS vehicles. These are vehicles that are level two and up, but are not um, self-driving cars or anything like that. There oh, were actually a hundred and something reported on that. That's a separate separate section of things. So when I was talking, let me, let me jump about, in, Michael, and just explain yeah. what the levels are. Yeah. So Michael referred to the levels of self-driving, and these are all derived from an SAE document called J3016. That's the name of the standard. Um, It's publicly available, so if you Google SAE J3016, you can download it. But in that, they define five levels of uh, driving autonomy, starting with zero, which is your 1932 pickup truck going to uh, number two, which is what you're probably used to with your own car, which has some limited driver assistance features um, like uh, cruise control, for example, and lane uh, assist and that kind of thing. Level three would be level two would be yeah, level two, level one is cruise control, right? And then level two, level two would be 
a combination of things that would allow you to do something like advanced cruise or that type of thing. Adaptive cruise, yeah. Right. So level three would be something like a Tesla that's that's driving down the road under its uh, automatic controls. Um, and level four... If they worked properly, it would be level yeah. four. Right. It's level <laughs> two, really. Continuing to drive, yeah. Right. But level four and five are what people generally think of as the self-driving cars, meaning you can take your hands off the wheel for a long time and the car will go ahead and do what it wants to do. A level four will have a steering wheel because, or something like a steering wheel, because it assumes that at some point a human being will have to take over the control. Level five uh, doesn't have that requirement. Level five means the, the Jetsons, basically. You get in, it's going to do what it's going to do. And you can just sit back and take a nap. Okay, but the level five doesn't currently exist? No. There are no level five cars available. There are no level four cars available in the world today. Okay. So, so even the, 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 you know, the Waymo the, where they have a map of somewhere in Phoenix, I believe in Arizona, where it's all just flat, perfect yeah. grid. That's not level. And the, and you could call up a car and there's no one driving it technically. That's not level four. Well, that would be level four if they did not have a, a safety driver in it. But I don't think that they are yet to the point, and I could be wrong on this, I don't think they're yet to the point where they can offer that service with no human safety driver in it. Okay. Because they're also being... I think they are, and I think, I think they've been doing that. And I think GM just started doing that in San Francisco. But the, the difference there is that those are geofenced vehicles, so they can be level four within a certain place, but they're um, they certainly no level fives that can roam the country. Okay. So what's the difference between level two and level three? So my car, as I pointed out before, is a 2020 Toyota Corolla, and it's got automated lane warning. When it thinks you've left the lane, it beeps at you. Right. Um, it's got adaptive cruise control, which is great. It will steer all around corners on highways. Right. And it's got something which I've never tested where it will say it will automatically break if you try to hit a pedestrian going below 15 miles per hour. Um, what is that? <laughs> Now, I would say the difference there is, you know, <laughs> what's, what Tesla is advertising itself as is a level three, what it actually is is a level two. The driver in, in a level two vehicle has to maintain continuous observation and contact with, with the road, with the car, like you would driving a normal vehicle. Um, one of the issues that we see with automation complacency is people get too used to some of the ease of driving with these features on and, and lose focus. And we see accidents occur because of that. But that's, that's kind of the, the, the distinction there is that in the level three, there is a certain, there is the, and it's one of the reasons when Google said, this just isn't possible. There's an even longer period of, of basically taking the driver away from operating the vehicle but then you may have to have that driver take over at some point. And Google got to that point with its testing and its safety driver and said, this isn't going to work. Humans can't do this. And so they went and said, we're going to focus on level four. Really? They just Tesla, on the other hand, continues to maintain that it's level three when we're not sure if that can even be achieved safely. We're not sure if the data is there that, to tell us whether humans are capable of level three operations. So there's, 
there's a lot of fuzziness around you know the level two to three and the level three to fours but um hopefully that's a that's a little helpful in distinguishing it fred do you have any thoughts on that one yeah well uh, in my mind the the key difference between levels three and four is that <coughs> level three is well by analogy is kind of like gun control which is that you know people say you don't need to have gun controls for law-abiding citizens well everybody's law-abiding until they're not right um level three is kind of like that it, it works well supposedly until it doesn't and then all of a sudden you have to take over so you know if you've got all a pilot in, in an airplane you're flying along at thirty thousand feet it disconnects, you have a problem. You've got significant amount of time to take over the airplane. And studies have shown that it can take, you know, 30 seconds, maybe a minute to assume effective control of the airplane. But you've got some room to maneuver because you've got all this volume around you. Mm -hmm. um, in an automobile, if you've got, you know, one and a half seconds or maybe a half a second to take, it, to take over control before you crash into the car next to you, boy, that's a big that's a big ask. Um, your car is hurtling down the road at 88 feet per second, 100 feet per second. You're two feet away from the car next to you. All of a sudden, the control system says, eh, your turn. And it, <laughs> so that's why people think that that's maybe, uh, maybe unachievable. Level four car, on the other hand, would be designed so that if it if it is incapable of continuing to operate automatically, it will bring you to some safe condition uh, without human intervention. At that point, you might, you know, you would take over control. So if you're going down the highway, you have to turn off the highway. It says, I'm not qualified for this uh, side road that you want to go on to. It would stop presumably by the side of the road and say, time for you to take over. So you've got the chance to do that, wake up, put down your drink, whatever it is that you're doing. The level three doesn't give you that opportunity. It just says, bang, your turn. Uh, it's really hard to do. Right. I, I, I would love to get everyone on level four, even level five cars, because I've been having to do these really long drives lately. Yeah. And I think everybody's got a death wish. <laughs> okay. it's, and, and you see, I'll look into cars passing, you know, they're crawling, they're trying to get into my trunk. And I'll move out of their way. And as they're passing me, they're just on their phone. Yeah. And I'm like, you're you're going 80 miles per hour down the road. And, you know, you, you got a cup of coffee in your hand. You're looking at your phone. And I mean, you know, good for you. <laughs> it's it's frightening. It is frightening and dangerous. Yeah. So we we just last weekend, we had to drive my son up to his, uh, his camp. He's a camp counselor up in the Adirondacks or Catskills. And we pull off the highway and my wife says, all right, you're going to take over control of the 17 year old, which I was like, oh no, he's been sleeping the whole ride. And thankfully we had the automated lane warning thing go on, um, which is a great learning tool for a kid. So he goes off driving, but every time the bell would go off, he would jerk the steering wheel like he was playing a video game. Um, <laughs> it was great feature, but I think you got to adjust it to kids who are used to quick second responses like oh i gotta quickly jerk the wheel to make the bell stop um well, i think that's a great analogy and i think you know think of level three as a 10 year old driving your car as long <laughs> as going, you know as long as you're going straight down the road and everything is great the 10 year old could do it but you know you get in a complex situation all of a sudden 
they didn't know what the hell to do. So they said, dad, time for you to take over control. <laughs> right. Well, you got to jump over into the seat and, you know, do all those things. Right. Um, at least the level four is more like having your 17 year old drive the car. They got some experience. They know how to put the brakes on. They know how to pull off to the side of the road. So I, I, I'm not sure if that's useful, but you know, maybe that to see the difference. Yeah. I don't know. I, I survived. I was, I was worried. We went onto a loose gravel road and I was like, Oh no, but that's when he actually drove well on freshly paved roads. He couldn't handle it. <laughs> but when we're in dangerous territory, great. So no, it's, it's also important to note that within the industry, there is a lot of controversy about the efficacy and, and use of these levels because there is ambiguity. It's hard to discriminate whether a car is level two or three or four. And there is no government authority that says this car is level two, three or four. So far, that is up to the sole responsibility of the manufacturer of the car to determine what is its driving level. And so there's this, this, this amorphous space between the regulations and the insurance industry and state regulators as to, you know, exactly how do you regulate these things? How do you insure them? How do you assign liability? Um, that's something we haven't discussed. And I don't know if that's good for this discussion or not, but if the car is driving, who's responsible? If you get a speeding ticket, who gets the speeding ticket? If you're in an accident, Who's responsible for the accident? So liability is a huge issue. And Michael's much better qualified than I am to talk about that. But it's a in these discussions, it's a real sleeper issue. Yeah, liability is probably the only thing keeping all of these higher level vehicles from being tested directly on all of our roads right now, um, because there are no standards keeping them away. Um, and there was another thing too, the, the, there's, you know, going back to Fred's point about state regulation and the amorphous area there, you know, there's, you know, although Tesla is claiming to have level three plus capabilities and, and they've conveniently told California that full self-driving is not um, one of those systems so that they can avoid reporting incidents under the state's law meant to capture autonomous vehicle incidents. So um that that uh, amorphous quality of the levels allows companies to fudge around the edges a little as well so why hasn't someone like nitsa tried to define this it almost sounds like these levels are like uh cell phone plans like we offer 5g but that doesn't mean it. that's just marketing is, is anyone taking a step to say all right if we're really going to say this is what level one is from a from a regulatory no, I standpoint mean, i mean NHTSA has recently indicated, you know, been a little stronger in its language around the levels, you know, particularly when talking about Tesla and some of its claims, but no one other than SAE has really taken a lot of initiative in, in attempting to find it in, in another way that I'm aware of. Fred, do you know of any other organizations doing automation work that have done that? Um, I'm going to ask that question again. Is anyone else setting automated automation levels or trying to categorize these vehicles in any other way than the SA level system at the moment? Yeah, ISO is, um, but again, that's not universally accepted. So people are looking at that and, and people are talking about different ways of doing it, but there's no other, there's no other document that's widely disseminated that uh, talks about driving automation levels yet. 
And the other issue here would be the, you know, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission has some authority here to prevent, you know, consumers from being hoodwinked by manufacturers that are saying they've got X when they actually have Y, which is not, um, this is, it, we've asked them to take action against Tesla in that regard. We asked about autopilot. They haven't done anything. Um, so we may be worth another try at some point to see if they're going to regulate that. But NHTSA doesn't really have the authority to regulate <clears throat> what someone calls their product. They might have the authority, you know, if the marketing of that product leads consumers to believe in it in such a way that it causes them to crash. It could be a defect, but that's a lot harder to argument to make than deceptive marketing. So we were hopeful that the Federal Trade Commission will at some point take a stance on that because it's it's effectively what's leading a lot of Tesla owners to an early death. It's, it's important, I'm sorry, Anthony, it's important for people to realize that NHTSA operates very differently than other parts of the Department of Transportation. So the Federal Aviation Administration or FAA <clears throat> certifies commercial aircraft before they're allowed to fly. That means, uh, however imperfectly, they look at the whole design and production process. They look at the components that are going into it. And before the aircraft is allowed to fly uh, with any paying passengers, it has to pass an extensive series of tests and a lot of analysis to get the determination that the FAA says it's safe enough to fly. Nothing like that exists for automotive industry. NHTSA doesn't operate that way. NHTSA traditionally has refused to, in a sense, pre-qualify or, or pre-evaluate any automotive offering that goes out. What they concentrate on is letting the technology get out in public. And then after the fact, if they discover that there's a safety defect, they will, uh, they have the authority to, and will often ask for a recall that brings these, the, brings the products in and requires the defect to be corrected. But importantly, it's not in advance of the release of the autom of the automobile. It's not in advance of the release of the design. So a lot of the things that we're talking about here, we think should be incorporated in vehicles and they should be certified or verified to be in those vehicles and operating uh, effectively before the vehicle is released to the public. That's never been the way NHTSA operates. And uh, we think that that's probably a defect in the process, but that's the way things are set up now. Right, and, that, and what Fred's alluding to is, is that NHTSA mm -hmm. operates a system which is effectively allows manufacturers to self-certify their vehicle. Basically, they put a label on it and put it out for sale. And that label says that they're certified that it meets all of the federal motor vehicle safety standards that are applicable. Um, and the manufacturer is assumed to have conducted sufficient testing and research to ensure that they've met the standards, but NHTSA doesn't have the ability to go out and test every vehicle for every standard, obviously. Um, and so they rely on that self-certification process. And that obviously has some problems when the manufacturers the only responsible party. Um, and that's why when we're talking about autonomous vehicles or automated driving systems, you're seeing <clears throat> some tension there between um, 
you know, the, the manufacturers could put these things out on the streets right now as long as they meet the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards, which most of which are so old, they never even contemplated this type of vehicle. Um, state laws may pose a small barrier, but you could put a, what you called a level four vehicle, a, a fleet of them on the roads right now, if you're willing to take the risk of, you know, product liability attorneys coming after you with pretty good cases, I would add. Um, I don't think that, I, I just don't think the technology is far enough along for manufacturers to be willing to risk that at this point. And it's another reason why we need, you know, you'll always hear me say we need more data, we need more research um, before we start throwing these things out on the road at the whim of folks like Elon Musk. Right. And, and so we got a little sidetrack from the original question, which is about the 400 self-driving right. crashes. So out of that, it was 130 were fully automated driving. <clears throat> like what? So are those the Waymo type vehicles? Yeah. Explain that, like what exactly? Like Waymo and Cruise and- yeah, those were Those were yeah. mostly, you know, minor incidents. I believe there was one major incident reported in those. And those are almost invariably vehicles that are geofenced and being tested in very specific locations. So what, what do you explain? The what, what do you mean by 367 <laughs> was the crash avoidance system. So NHTSA is tracking basically two major sets of data. One is the self-driving cars, which is the 130 some odd here that were, you know, mostly minor events. And then another big portion that's actually, you know, was which led to that headline the Al Jazeera reporter really wanted to talk about self-driving cars and so he conflated the idea of these cars that have crash avoidance advanced crash avoidance system with self-driving cars they're not they have you know they're level two and above vehicles that have a combination of braking and um, lane keeping that allows them to effectively operate for extended periods of time, you know, with minimal human intervention. So they're, they're, this is basically taking the lowest level, you know, that they can look at in this type of this type of technology and trying to figure out where it's going wrong, where it's working. And they can do that by focusing on all these different crashes. So that's, that's where um, the 400 number comes from, which actually is um, crash avoidance systems that are that have had a few incidents across America. Some of those are phantom braking. Um, some of them are lane issues. Um, and a lot of them were Teslas. Okay. Well, so 400 doesn't sound like much of a number considering like how many <clears throat> vehicles have these. I mean, my car has the emergency, automatic emergency braking. Right. Um, and you know, these are only incidents that the manufacturers heard of. They're not. Oh, okay. This isn't like, you know, we have a direct reporting from every vehicle in America that has a system when there's a failure. These are simply incidents that have, you know, resulted in an injury, property damage, that type of thing that came to the manufacturer's attention. So if the insurance company only heard about it, NHTSA is not going to hear about it. It's only stuff that the manufacturer receives a complaint, lawsuit, that type of thing over. But the, the man, with, with cars today, like they're collecting all of this data. I mean, the manufacturer must have this data, correct? Well, for the manufacturer to have that data, they actually need a connection to the data. You know, if, if again, if you're Tesla, you, Tesla has a pretty sophisticated data collection system that uploads vehicle data to the cloud. Mm -hmm. And Tesla has access to that. They use it to develop their AI and all these sorts of things. Other manufacturers, 
Um, I, I couldn't speak to GM, but you know, most cars on the road aren't collecting data and reporting it back to the manufacturer. Um, so there's, you know, that's probably not the case. And that may be why Tesla is overrepresented in the data is because they're actively collecting that data. I think it's also uh, important to note that those 400 crashes occurred over a relatively short period. The data has only been uh, collected for a few months. Right, right. Oh, wow. Okay, that means that, that's totally different then. Okay. In fact, there should be an update coming in, in, a, in a couple of weeks. So we'll see what happened over the last month. Yeah, but it never went back to the, the you know, the beginning of, of Tesla or, or wherever right. when people started talking about extensive automated uh, driving assistance capabilities. So it's only a very limited data set. And uh, that's what we're looking at right now. But I imagine, again, the manufacturers must have this data because I think, you know, when I bring my car into the dealership because it has free oil changes and whatnot, one time they updated software and I asked what it was and they said, oh, it's new telemetric software. Do you want it? You have a Toyota? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Toyota is the other manufacturer that collects all the great data. Um, Toyota even has camera, some camera uh, snaps that it takes, I believe, in and around collisions or in certain circumstances. They have they have a lot of data. In fact, I think I think they're probably next to next to Tesla. They're probably the one collecting and transmitting the most data at the at the moment. And so no one's filed like in any of these situations. Some lawyers saying, "Hey, hand over all the data through discovery." Or I watched too many conversion movies. <laughs> but we wouldn't get access to that. Huh? No, we would not. Is that something that someone like NHTSA can be like, you guys are collecting this data handed over in a quarterly batch? Yes, and NHTSA is doing that with um, in a couple of its uh, investigations because they've got an active and pretty involved investigation into autopilot and first responder crashes. So they've done some pretty deep digging data-wise there, although all of Tesla's responses have been completely redacted, so we'll have no idea what was in there. So, um, sorry, I'm trying to glance at, at my notes and uh, and keep the conversation going. Um, I don't remember what I was gonna ask, it just fell out of my brain. So, oh, as a, as a consumer, so all this level one, two, three, four, five, like what do I, what do, I do, just ignore it? <laughs> Um, and don't take it seriously and be like, hey, it has adaptive cruise control, which means it will keep me three car lengths behind another driver. Um, and everyone behind me gets mad because they think I should be closer. Yeah, I think, I think consumers now, are, it's, it's challenging simply to understand what systems your car has in it and how they operate. Just figuring out how to control them on your dashboard can be a yeah. challenge. So what... I, I don't think consumers really need to know anything about the levels. They're too confusing right now. I mean, I would rather consumers learn how automatic emergency braking works, how their blind spot warning works, how their lane keeping assistance works so that they can work with their vehicle to be as safe as possible. Did you ever buy an electric fan? Yeah. Anthony? Yeah, yeah. You ever notice there's a sticker on it that comes from, that, that makes you think it's safe? The Underwriters Laboratory. Underwriters Laboratory, very right. good. You, you got a gold star for that. Okay, <laughs> Underwriters Laboratory is developing a standard for, uh, that's my support staff, sorry. Okay. Um, my dog checked in earlier. <laughs> Underwriters right, Laboratory is developing, a, is developing a standard to similarly uh, certify the safety of self-driving vehicles. 
It's called uh, UL4600. And it's a, it's a very extensive standard, but it's based on establishment of safety cases, which require the subscribers to describe various aspects of the safety of the vehicle and how they addressed it. It doesn't say you have to do it a certain way. It just says these are things you need to address. Uh, for example, you need to address how a, a passenger can initiate. Excuse me. <laughs> well, what is what? Uh, so Fred runs a dog my fighting dog, ring. Dog what is, is happening? Dogs. We may need a little pause here. <laughs> <laughs> Undergraduates. Um, yeah. All right. Let's just let's oh, take a moment. It'll say, for example, that the manufacturer of the vehicle has to explain how an occupant of the vehicle can initiate stopping the car, an emergent, you know, essentially red button that you can push to stop and get out of the car. That's a very extensive standard. Uh, they're pushing it. So they think, and, and probably has some justification for that, they think that a standard outside of the government will be useful and sufficient to establish the safety of vehicles if people subscribe to it and they're appropriately audited to establish conformance to that standard. So there are initiatives going on to do exactly what you're talking about, establish to the consumer that this, these vehicles are safe and will in fact do their intended function, transport your safety from one point to another. And the Underwriters Laboratory is probably leading that charge right now. Wouldn't you say that's true, Mike? Oh, Mike, I think he muted, muted himself. Yeah, I did. My dog was going a little nuts there. And I, I, I don't even think, I don't think I have a response to that question anyway. So we can just cut that last part. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was a good question. So what was the question? I kind of missed it. My dog was barking on me. <laughs> you wanna, Fred, you want to try the question again? It was UL. Um, I, well, well, I posited that you are right probably now. leading the charge, Michael, right now in terms of uh, a standard that can verify consumer acceptance of a autonomous or self-driving vehicle. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think that's probably because they're coming from a perspective that's traditionally not, not aligned with automakers. And they, you know, the SAE tends to be dominated by automotive engineers who are probably uh, um, not as inclined to make the process independently verifiable. And they, you know, they, manufacturers are very close guarded with their testing and their secrets and their trade secrets and confidentiality is just, it's, it's amazing how under wraps they try to keep things. So I would, I would say that ULs um, may have a lot of success there because I don't see the SAE taking up that, that charge. But again, this has to be voluntary by the auto manufacturers to want to partake yeah. in this. But I mean, right now they can just do whatever they want. Be like, yeah, we tested it and wait for a recall or a lawsuit. What's the incentive? Right. Oh. Yeah, there's no, there's no outside influence that's going to force them to conform to any particular standard. That's why, you know, as Michael said earlier, they could put a car on the road right now because it conforms to the, all the applicable FMVSS. We think that there need to be FMVSS that are uniquely applicable to the automated uh, driver assistance features and self-driving features that cars have now and are likely to have in the future. 
Because, right. I mean, going back to your, your fan analogy, Fred, I don't know if you ever um, remember we used to sell steel-bladed fans. You could buy them in your home mm-hmm. um, instead of plastic. One Right now, they're all plastic, the blades. You used to be able to buy steel-bladed ones. And you can't buy those anymore because of people like me as an infant um, who sliced their finger off in a steel-bladed fan. Like, is, you know... <laughs> I don't. I mean, they had big openings in there too. He was really I, you know, big enough for a two-year-old to say, "Hey, what happens if I do this?" <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, is that what the industry needs? Like, is a not a whole bunch of two-year-olds driving cars and crashing them, but is it is it just come down to legal pressure where like this is too expensive to keep doing this? Well, there's a few options. One is do nothing, and that's the that's the current NHTSA option. Uh, The second option is to put in place applicable standards, federal motor vehicle safety standards that will assure a certain level of safety conformance. A third is to have some third party verify the safety of the vehicle. And there's different ways to accomplish that. One is to basically have consumers force the automobile companies to accept the standard like the UL 4600 um, and other is for the governments to establish a mechanism for third-party review of uh, self-driving offerings. Uh, we've, you know, we've just talked about some of that in some of our responses to NHTSA. There's various ways of doing that. A lot of, a lot of industries do that now for complex technical offerings, particularly in the military side, um, design reviews, design acceptance reviews, all those sorts of mechanisms that people understand very well. But something probably needs to be done for these self-driving vehicles rather than just let the industry <laughs> determine their own acceptance procedures or put the cars on the road without acceptance procedures. All right, so I gotta ask the two of you, do you guys have cars that have adaptive cruise control in them? Michael's shaking his head. No. I do not. Um, I have blind spot warning and I've got forward collision warning, but I don't have any lane change or any anything else at the moment. And I've got a 2019 VW Jetta. Mm. I didn't pay extra for the features. Okay. Fred, you I've, have got a, a- I've got a 2020 Subaru with eyesight and it's got, uh, it's got all that stuff. And I like the way it works pretty well, except for <clears throat> the self-steering, which abruptly <laughs> abruptly stops, rings a bell, and and has my car heading 30 miles an hour into the guardrails. So <laughs> I, <clears throat> you know, it's <clears throat> Michael used the term earlier, geofenced. Yes. What does that mean? That means that there's a the car is programmed so that it only operates certain features within certain geographical limits. For example, the Super Cruise on GM vehicles is designed so that it only operates on interstate highways, um, as my understanding, or maybe, you know, maybe limited access roads that are like interstate highways. So those are geofenced. They only operate within certain areas. My Subaru is not geofenced, so I can turn on the self-steering on any road. And the only way I know that it's (laughs) not adequate is when I find myself headed for something really solid at an, un- at an unacceptable speed. So I don't like that much, but <laughs> maybe maybe that's part of its safety features because it certainly keeps me alert when I'm behind the wheel. 
right? I mean, my car will throw up a, a warning of a coffee cup um, if it doesn't like you're driving after a while and says, hey, maybe you need a break. I've seen that. I've seen well, mine that. does that too. Yeah. Toyota. Which I, I thought was clever, but also their, their lane change thing. It Sometimes it works great. Like it knows lane centering, but other times it's just like, we don't know where you are. And I'm like, I, I don't know where I am either. Who's driving this car? One thing we've learned experimentally in our Subarus and my, my kids own Subarus as well, is that if you turn your directional signal on the, the lane warning comes on on one side but you can go equally well to the other side and it gives you no warning so it it, it doesn't preferentially cancel the lane change on one side or another it cancels all lane changes all so right. um anyway don't don't ask me how i learned about that experiment <laughs> I, I hope they address that and then it's a standard <laughs> right because it, it seems like so a lot of this being software driven they take this software engineer's attitude of just kind of well, we'll just update it later we're all which guinea is, pigs. We're all guinea pigs right now, whether we know it or not. You know, which which is annoying when they do that to my operating system, and it's dangerous when they do it to my car. Right, and it's also annoying that they don't pay us to be uh, test drivers. They should do that. I mean, we should get a Steve should get a helmet, right? <laughs> all these features. Yeah, at least give us T-shirts. Yeah, I survived self-driving. Absolutely, or at least a water <laughs> bottle, or you know, something. Right. Or, you know, take five grand off the price. No, you um, never. All right. All right. Um, okay. I'm going to jump onto something that's not, that's maybe at best tangentially related to what we're talking to. It's more of a pet peeve for me. I think, Michael, you touched on it briefly. Um, headlights. Headlights, like, I, I seem some vehicles are just designed to blind people. What is happening there? There's certain ones that I'm just like, you're, they don't even have their high beams on. They're just designed to kill me. I wonder if, if those are always the OEM headlights that are in vehicles like that, or if, you know, a lot of headlights have to be aimed. You have to keep track of that. I know that every time I get in my car, go to safety inspection, I don't know if this is a uh, scam or not, but the guy always wants to have me pay him $20 to align my headlights. And <laughs> so I know that you undercoating out of alignment. So that, that, that's a lot of it. I know that, you know, the, the adaptive driving beams that are, have just been authorized by NHTSA are going to solve a lot of these issues. And I know Fred has some more to say on that. You know, this gets a little nerdy, but a lot of it has to do with the, the beam shaping associated with the headlights. So in the old days, you had high beam and low beam, but the spot was, was pretty diffuse, right? So when you brought it in for inspection, they made sure that it was low enough so that the center of the low beam was on the target and then around it, you had this diffuse halo. And that's what people got used to. With the headlights that are on cars now, modern headlights, they're LED or they're, you know, some other high intensity discharge, but the full scope of the uh, intense beam goes right up to the top of the limit. So before where there was a fuzzy boundary, right now there's, there's a really sharp limit. So when you go over a bump, all of a sudden the oncoming car sees the whole full intensity of the headlight rather than this fuzzy halo that used to be around the headlights. So that's part of it too. I think that's probably a big part of, of what people um, are seeing. And my car gets blinked a lot, even when I've got the low beams on. Um, and I do have automatic high beam, low beam switching, which works pretty well, except that everybody doesn't agree with exactly the way the low beams are configured. Right. But I think that's got a lot to do with the use of the, you know, the high intensity lights and the refractive lenses rather than the old, uh, 
the few spotlights that, that people used to have for their beams. Right. I also think that's to do with car heights because everyone else seems to be an SUV and my car is like maybe a couple inches off the ground in comparison. Yeah, that absolutely is it. Cause I know in a sedan living in the suburbs of Virginia, I have a, a lot of uh, suburban type vehicles behind me that seem to be pointing directly into my eyes. Yeah. And that's just the car height thing. <laughs> that, okay. That's exactly what it is. We'll have to get into uh, car height issues in another episode. Um, I don't know, guys. Anything else you want to cover for this uh, two-part episode? Hey, welcome to getting to the end of part two, unless this is the end of part two. That, that wasn't too bad. No. no. Um, <laughs> that should be the uh, review. I, I was, it wasn't I was too bad. Today, I didn't feel like I was in a talking mood. <laughs> but no, we have a lot more acronyms if people want to hear more. We did. We, we've got thousands more. Oh, please, no. Now, all right. Uh, thanks, guys. Until next time. And everybody, make sure to visit autosafety.org and empty your wallet. Or just, you know, sign up for the newsletter. Yeah. Help us. It helps you. Exactly. All right. Thanks, guys. Till next time. Thank you. All right. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.